Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. I'm Jocelyn Mesa Miranda. Thanks for joining us on this last episode of 2022. We'll be highlighting some of our most memorable stories from this year. It's Friday, December 30th. Early in the year, KUNC's Stephanie Daniel visited a home in Greeley, where a small group of women are supporting each other to stay substance-free. It's called a recovery residence, and as Stephanie reports, they're growing in number as more people choose to live in substance-free environments. In a one-story house on a quiet street in Greeley, Julia Birdsong is giving me a tour. This is my room. It has its own bathroom. Birdsong is one of six women living here. I'm an alcoholic, and I was living in a community setting, and I had relapsed. Last September, she moved into this Oxford house, a self-supporting and drug-free home. The national organization has over 2,400 recovery houses across the country. So I've been in Oxford for a little over two years. I love it. It gives me purpose. Residents are required to pay rent, be employed, attend three recovery-based meetings a week, and do chores. When a potential housemate calls about a room, she's got her talking points down. First, I tell them it's democratically run. There's no one person who runs the house, there's no manager of the house, and everyone has an equal say in any decision that affects the house. So we vote on everything. Each Oxford house has six officers, like president or treasurer. Residents serve a six-month term, then rotate to a new position. We like individuals to feel like they have a voice and to feel like they have responsibilities. Taylor Wright is the senior outreach coordinator for Oxford House of Colorado and in recovery himself. Hey, I've actually got some responsibilities that are not using drugs. And it was the, the best feeling in the world to me. And I like to think that's the goal of every new member that's entering an Oxford house. There were 17 Oxford houses in the state in 2011. Today, there are 105, with plans to add 20 more by the end of the year. Yeah, I am the president. So um, I'll call it in order. It's at 1126. That's Lindy Reed. She and four other housemates are walking me through the weekly meeting, which is normally held on Sunday. We're going to go ahead and open with the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity. Reed also joined the house in September. An adult treatment court mandated she go to a sober living facility for her methamphetamine and opiate addictions. She says it was tough at first. In fact, housemate Julia Birdsong told her to be prepared to work. And it was. I hit the ground just running and wanting to help and do whatever I could to make it a more suitable place for all of us and for anybody else coming in. Reed recently celebrated 90 days of sobriety. She's looking for a job and applied to cosmetology school. I feel like I'm home here, but it took me losing everything and catching those charges to unfortunately get to where I'm at now, but I'm grateful for it. Recovery residences are growing in Colorado. In 2019, the state legislature passed a bill that created a new certifying body for them. Since then, certified recovery residences have nearly tripled. 
Oxford House is exempt from this certification because it's already regulated. I was an addict for 15 years before I found Oxford, so it's changed my life substantially. Deanna Darst is an outreach worker for Oxford House in northern Colorado. Oxford is successful not just because it's about being sober, but it's about living a life of recovery. She held multiple offices in her house before moving into regional and statewide leadership positions. Then she got a job working with the organization. Recently, Darst moved back into a house. It's not a requirement for staff. She just needed extra support. And so there really is that connection as well as that accountability that you find within your peers. My week has gone really well. I feel like I'm really picking stuff up at work. Back at the house meeting, Julia Birdsong is sharing how she's doing. Having the new job can be very stressful, but it hasn't been too bad. Birdsong and the other women can stay here as long as they want. A resident only gets kicked out if they relapse, don't pay their share of expenses, or have disruptive behavior. It's a grow or go program. If you're just wanting cheap rent, it's not the place for you because you are held accountable and your behavior matters. In December, Oxford House of Colorado had an occupancy rate of nearly 84 percent and an abstinence rate of over 96 percent. Meeting adjourned at 1144. Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Stephanie Daniel, KUNC. Stephanie produced that story for us in February. KUNC's Luke Runyon leads our water desk coverage. In September, he brought us this story about a nasty stomach bug that's usually associated with cruise ships and restaurants. The norovirus can sicken people for days with nausea and vomiting. As KUNC's Luke Runyon reports, the virus is so contagious that outbreaks can pop up in some unexpected places, like the Grand Canyon. Jackie King and a group of 14 friends launched their rafts into the Colorado River in early May. The trip started smoothly, other than it being unseasonably warm. But when they ran into other rafters, they were warned. Norovirus was sweeping through the canyon. By day nine, one person in King's group was sick. Stomach troubles. After patient zero, it was one to two people a day going down. Um, our worst day was when we ran Upset Rapid. Upset is a huge, roiling whitewater rapid right in the middle of the canyon. And we had three people go down almost instantly after we got through the rapid. Um, people vomiting over the side of the boat just couldn't hold anything in. King became ill that same day. Her group had a military-grade metal rocket box to use as a toilet. That's required of all rafters to store human waste from the three-week-long trip. And theirs was getting a lot of use. You're sitting on a rocket box in the outdoors in the middle of nowhere hugging a bucket. Um, And it's, I mean, it's about as uncomfortable as you can imagine. King's group wasn't alone in its misery. Justice Burkett and his wife backpacked the canyon two weeks after King floated through. I would say about two hours after I started drinking the water from the river, um, my stomach was in tremendous pain. Like it felt like there was like a balloon being blown up from inside of me that was like being overfilled. Both King and Burkett were part of what a new CDC report calls the largest documented outbreak of norovirus in the Grand Canyon backcountry. From April to June of this year, there were more than 200 confirmed cases, and likely a lot more that went uncounted. 
Sharon Hester is with Arizona Raft Adventures, which outfits trips in the canyon. She says a few of their guides got sick this spring, and it can be tough to keep germs from spreading even in the great outdoors. What they do is um, try to put them in a boat uh, where they're the only one rowing or they're the only person in that boat. Or if there's uh, you know, someone else sick, it would be the sick boat <laughs> where everybody would try to stay away. Hester says norovirus has been a problem in the canyon for years. The virus can live in the river's tepid water and then easily spread among groups who all use the same toilets and eat communally. The CDC report says the virus can even survive in beach sand, where rafters set up camps, allowing it to spread between trips. As the number of tourists visiting the national park has grown and outbreaks have become more frequent over the years, Hester says raft companies have been forced to change protocols. Don't vomit in the river, vomit in a garbage bag, Um, you know, isolate people, hand washing, you know, it got more and more strict, um, making sure the water was always purified. By the time Jackie King's group of 15 people got off the river, all but four in her group had come down with norovirus. They'd even started adding small amounts of bleach to their drinking water to try and purify it. Even with all the stomach trouble, would it keep her away from another Grand Canyon trip? Oh, no, no. I like I am chomping at the bit to go back down um, and have a different experience. A trip where no one has to hug a bucket. I'm Luke Runyon in Grand Junction, Colorado. This story first aired in September. It's part of ongoing coverage of the Colorado River, Produced by KUNC and supported by the Walton Family Foundation. There was one story we couldn't pass up in this Colorado edition episode of Memorable Stories. This past October marked 50 years since John Denver released Rocky Mountain High. KUNC's Emma Vandenindy explains the legacy of his life and his music. Denver was known for his granny glasses and his long, dirty blonde hair. He gave as much back to nature as it gave to him. And of the many things he fell in love with, one was the state of Colorado. Colorado Henry John Dutchendorf Jr., had fantasized about living in the state long before he wrote songs about it. Amy Abrams is co-manager of his estate. She says his fantasies led him to adopt the name of his favorite city. Seemingly that name certainly was foreboding of his future in that his love of Colorado and his impact on the state became quite a part of his uh, life and career. The idea for Rocky Mountain High came when he was 27, camping at night with friends in Aspen. That was the first summer where he spent the entirety camping in the mountains, taking in all of the beauty that the state has to offer. That's G. Brown. He heads the Colorado Music Experience, a nonprofit that preserves the state's music. And notably, the Perseid meteor shower occurred in August. And that was one of the more spectacular events that he had ever witnessed. And Rocky Mountain High was the result. Some people found the lyrics controversial because of the word high. Some radio stations banned the song. Friends around a campfire, everybody's high. But in an interview, Denver said he just wanted to capture the experience of being in Colorado. I love the feeling that I have when I've 
hike someplace up in the mountains. I'm in the middle of, of that magnificence, whether it's in the winter or the summer. And, and I know that that kind of feeling is something that is available to everybody. The song debuted at Red Rocks Amphitheater in mid-1972 and was released in October. It finally reached Billboard's top 10 in March. The song gave a new identity to the Rocky Mountain region. Brown says back then, Colorado was a flyover state and Denver was a dusty old cow town. After that song, you could go to New Zealand, tell people you were from Colorado, and they'd say, oh, John Denver. People started moving to Colorado in droves, drawn by the nature scenes in Denver's lyrics. His fans loved him. Don Hanawalt was one of them. She recently attended a memorial concert at the Colorado Symphony. In the crowded lobby, she recalled a memory from one of Denver's concerts in the 70s. I waited till the end of the show, and he'd been sipping on this cup all night, and I went up to the stage and asked him if I could have the cup. It was just a styrofoam cup with part brandy and part tea, but it had Denver's teeth marks on it. And I was, you know, just over the moon, <laughs> thrilled to death, so I took it home put it on my dresser, and my mother threw it away. <laughs> she thought it was garbage, so. His legacy stuck, even after his death in 1997. Paul Epstein owned the Twist and Shout record store in Denver when the singer's plane crashed. Epstein said it had a huge impact on his customers. I had never seen anything quite like it. Sinatra was the closest. I had never seen all strata of society pour into the store desperate to find recordings by John Denver. Colorado commemorated Denver in many ways. In 2007, lawmakers made Rocky Mountain High the second state song. He was also the first person inducted into the Colorado Music Hall of Fame. And this year, the governor renamed a trail after the song. But Denver's Rocky Mountain High was not just for applause. Abram says it was for awareness. John felt really passionately about, you know, both the solace and the, the peace that nature could bring an individual, and also the importance of protecting our environment and sustainability in our world. His advocacy, as well as his music, continues to touch people worldwide, 50 years later. Rocky Mountain High. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Emma Vandenheide. Rocky Mountain High. Emma first reported this story in October. That's all for today on Colorado Edition. Thanks for listening. The Colorado Edition podcast is posted every Friday. Just hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If there's a story you'd like to hear, send us an email at coloradoedition at kunc.org. Our theme music is composed by Colorado Musicians. Brianna Harris, and Johnny Burroughs. Other music in the show by Blue Dot Sessions. I'm Jocelyn Mesa Miranda. Happy New Year.